So today's sermon I have titled The Imitation Game, and that was kind of alluded to with the beginning, our, our first video there. We're going to look at what Paul tells us and teaches us, and the Bible says about who and how and what we should be imitating. When getting ready for this sermon, if any time you look on the internet for things involving imitation, you always get the cliche, uh, imitation is the utmost form of flattery. But then when you stop and think about it, like, is it really, though? Has anybody ever heard an imitation, somebody else doing of them? Ladies, you do a lot of great things well. You can multitask better than, better than we can. Uh, I don't know how I found spices in the cupboards, my phone, my keys, and sometimes the shoes on my feet before I got married. I can look for things, and you guys can find things better than we do all day. But have you ever, have you ever heard y'all's imitations of guys? It is one voice and one voice only. You do a million other things well, inflections, things like that, but imitations of us is always a little bit caveman sounding like. I don't know where I put this. It's always the same thing. So while you do everything else well, your imitations of us are not always so flattering. And going back to the video, parents, have you ever said one thing to a child months ago only to have it imitated right back to you in the least convenient time? I think Beckham chronicles everything that I ever say that may be an advantage to him and towards it back in the least convenient times. There's times where, Dad, you promised we could build a fort after dinner, before football, right? Like, that was in June that I said that. So sometimes the words that are imitating of you come back in the least flattering ways. Kids are perfect little parrots at times. So what about us? We have a great idea of what it feels like to be imitated, but who or what are we imitating ourselves? To identify that, I think we need to turn to what our eyes are seeing all the time. Um, it's in one of these moments that I look back and you think about the, the little kids' Sunday school and the songs that you learn. Oh, be careful little eyes what you see. Oh, be careful little eyes what you see. For the Father up above is looking down in love. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. That's the best thing you're getting out of this voice today. So what are our eyes looking at? I think it's important to realize and take some intentionality into what we're always seeing. So in a day and age of technology, we'll go to our phones. The big four social media platforms, Twitter or X, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok, these platforms are are responsible for more views of any type of content than any other website out there. Among those four, if anybody wants to take a guess, I think you'll undershoot it, these four are responsible for 33.8 billion clicks per month. 33.8 billion clicks per month go through Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Kids, adults, because I've seen adults on there too, how many hours do we devote a week trying to get the dance move right? I, would, I thought about trying to do a dance move, but any dance move that I know now is outdated already, so I'm not going to embarrass myself. But how much time do we spend trying to sync up music to our new dance move only to upload it to TikTok? Maybe social media is not, uh, not your crutch. Let's go a different route. How about shopping? How about shopping? This is the one that actually gets me more than social media. My thumb knows exactly where that Amazon button is on my phone, and it's, uh, it's a little convicting at times. 
So if you calculate up Amazon, Target, Shopify, and Craigslist, I don't know who still uses Craigslist, but it's still up there, and PayPal, these sites see 5.9 billion visitors for, per month. Guys, maybe that's not your thing. Maybe you're 0 for 2, like, I don't need social media, I don't need shopping. Well, let's go to news and sports. YouTube, CNN, Fox News, and my vice, ESPN, account for 105.6 billion views per month. I think I've got that little uh, that survey screen of YouTube. Would you like to take the survey and skip the ads? I think I've got that jingle memorized by now. My point to all of this is where our eyes go, that's what we're going to imitate. We're going to go on social media. We're going to try and emulate the lives that we see on social media. We're going to see what the Joneses down the street have in their front yard, in their garage, in their kitchens, in their houses. We're going to try and emulate that with our shopping, shopping tendencies. We'll try and update our wardrobe with the seasons to keep up with everybody. But all that's fleeting. All of that's fleeting. I already said I'm not going to do a dance up here because by the time I have a dance memorized, it's already going to be outdated and onto some new dance. All of these things that we talked about, these billions and billions of clicks, all of the joy that comes through that is fleeting. We need to learn to set our eyes on higher things. It's no accident that Jesus tells us to set our eyes to heaven. That may be an obscure thing because we don't know what heaven looks like. But Jesus knew the importance that where our eyes were, is where our heart's going to follow and our actions are going to imitate. We're called to give God our best. And training our eyes, training our bodies to imitate God is what's going to do it for us. So this comes around to my first challenge of, of the day. When are you at your best? Everybody knows when they're at their best. My best time of day is not my wife's best time of day. Some of us are morning people. Some of us think those people are crazy. Some people need their coffee before they're good, before 9 a.m., and some people are night owls. It doesn't matter. You know your best. That's why God, Jesus, the Bible, doesn't specify, give me between 8 a.m. and 9 a.m., and then the rest of the day is yours. God calls for our best in all scenarios. So if you're best in the morning, I'm going to challenge you to the time where you pick up your phone and your thumb, start, your thumb starts to twitch towards whatever app it may be, Facebook, Amazon, Instagram, ESPN, before you check scores, before you check tweets, before you see what your shopping cart looks like, find that Bible app. And if you're not a Bible app person, find your physical Bible. I encourage you to find that best time of day and to use it for God. That's what's going to be creating the more long-term joy that we've seen throughout the Bible. That's what's going to create a sustainable life that we can love on others better with. That's how we judge others less. That's how we judge ourselves less. So the challenge, find your best time of day and figure out how to give your best to God. So back into Philippians itself, we see Paul say, join in, <clears throat> join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. At first glance, after all the talk, humility that we've seen through Paul, through Philippians this far, that might not seem on its own like its most humble statement. Join in imitating me. Do as I'm doing. But there's a little bit more context, context to that that we would have received last week. If we back up to verse 12, 
And pertaining to imitating Christ's attributes and to being more holy, Paul tells us this. Um, now, now that I have already, not, not that I have already obtained this, or am I perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So that's a big point right there. While Paul tells us in today's passage that we should imitate him because he is imitating Christ, before that, Paul explains how I'm not perfect. I don't have this all figured out. But what I will tell you is I'm striving to be more Christ-like. Paul wants to be more Christ-like. That's where he's comfortable inviting us to imitate him. I think this also brings up a big point to a lot of people's critique of the Christian walk. I think Christians get called hypocrites all the time. And there's a spirit of truth to that, depending on how we're presenting ourselves. It's hypocritical for us to say, this is perfection, anything short is not good enough. It's hypocritical for us to expect things out of people that we don't expect out of ourselves. If we're not willing to give people grace, the same amount of grace that we expect to receive, that is hypocritical. However, I want to sit in this room and say, we as Christians need to be able to admit our own shortcomings to people. We need to recognize ourselves where we fall short so that we can say, we fall short, but this is where we're striving. And that's where you can merge the two together without the hypocrisy. Our two minutes leading up to communion, it's not always a comfortable time, and it probably shouldn't be. It's when we're bringing up the worst of ourselves at times. It's when we're bringing up the deep, dark sins from the past week or time period or the day or whatever to confess to God. So while it's not comfortable, it's because we're coming face to face with our sins. And again, it's that admission to God that we need to also emulate Monday through Thursday from our nine to fives. We need to tell God sorry for what we've done. We need to admit to what we've done to God. The Bible also says confession is good for the soul to others. So people sitting in this room, we need to confess our sins to each other. It holds us accountable. It helps us be fulfilled in knowing that other know our tr others know our true selves. But then there's the bigger step. How do we take it outside of today? I don't know what your strengths are. One of my personal strengths is figuring out how many other things are involved with why something went wrong other than just me. I can analyze the situation and all the moving parts within it, and I can have the biggest hand in it, but if it had only been a Tuesday, that would have allowed more time for this. If I hadn't procrastinated already, it can't be all my fault. Or if somebody's working hard around our house to clean things up, I can't find things. Well, it's because they put it somewhere that I didn't put it. Well, a toolbox doesn't belong in the middle of the living room, and I can't argue that well. So if I want to know where my tools are, put it away myself. These are just examples of my shortcomings. But how often do we go into our workplace with a lot of moving people around us only to identify problems that come up as something that's not our fault? That may be true, but most of the time there's availability for us to shoulder some of that responsibility ourselves. I think that's one way. The scriptures call us to be holy, to be set apart, to be different from other people. I think that admissions of shortcomings, whether it's functional and how we're working or just how we're treating people, how we're loving on people, I think that's one way we break down the barriers of people calling Christians hypocrite and not worthy of emulating.
There's a big difference between striving to be Christ-like and admitting when we fall short. So Paul tells us to emulate him only because he's emulating Christ. We can also find this in different places of the Bible. So if you want to flip, it'll be on the screen, but if you want to flip there, Titus 2, 7 and 8, it tells us this. There's more ways that we can learn what we should imitate. Titus 2 says, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. Um, recently, we were kind of talking about what the different roles within our church do, uh, what the functionality of it looks like, and the, the role of deacons came up. And it's a super important office within the church. It's important for caring for the members of the church. But when we were talking about it, it was a little bit tough to come up with a nailed-down definition or a list of descriptive things in which deacons do. And sometimes that could be cause for alarm. I think here at Restoration Church, it's kind of the opposite. I think it's because our R groups, our small groups that we meet together with, and this is a shameless plug for an R group. If you're not in one, go ahead and sign up for one or find somebody that will get you involved in one. They're great. But I think our deacons, our, our office of deacons, sometimes we don't know exactly what they're physically doing because our R groups show up for our people in our church. So when we look in Titus and it says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, one way good works can be modeled is by showing up for your people. Meal trains, prayer gatherings, spending time together at parks, grabbing coffee in the morning. These are all ways, I'm not sure if you can drive by the morning grind any morning and not see a couple of people from our church sitting in there just talking and going through life together. It doesn't have to be the biggest mountaintop experience or anything like that. It's just being there for people, showing up for people, being faithful in God's word by being with his people. The next part of that Titus, uh, Titus passage says, And in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech. So that comes to what's going on right here. That's comes, that comes up to all of us that take the pulpit and we're preaching to you. My very first sermon, I said that one of your jobs out here to us as an elder team is to hold us accountable. Hold our feet to the flames. If there's something that we're saying from this pulpit, from this stage, that isn't directly from the Bible, that doesn't coincide with what the Bible says, I want you guys to be the first one to say, oh, are you sure about that, Brad? Or what's your interpretation of this? Like, are you sure this really says that? Because anybody that teaches, especially from the stage, I want to be teaching from integrity, digni dignity, and sound speech. But it doesn't stop up here. It goes back to that nine to five again. As you're going into your work week, how are you talking to and about people? So you might not always have the opportunity to be teaching people and to be held with that regard. Um, but in our, one of our art groups the other week, I asked the ladies, quite frankly, like, I'm not one of you. I can't speak for this. What's the hard part within relationships or groups of women? And came up was gossip. It's one of the things the Bible directly preaches against. And guys, we're not, we're not oblivious to this. I think maybe women are just better at reflecting sometimes and admitting some things. But gossip as a general whole for all of us is such a slippery slope. 
and it's not what Christ wants from us. As we're going into the work week, how do we talk about people? How do we talk about people who are born and hold the image of God? I think if we can get our heads wrapped around that they too are formed in the image of God, that goes a long way. And then the part about good speech. And this is the part that, quite frankly, humbles me. Um, what do I sound like when I'm up here on stage while I'm even in the church compared to what I sound like the rest of the week? In construction, it is hard to hold your tongue. I've learned several new words, even as a grown adult, while moving from the physical therapy realm into construction. I didn't know there were so many adjectives for the exact same you know, nut and bolt assembly, but there are some that are not good. Or how about basketball? You can speak to it. I lose my head sometimes in basketball. The things that come out of my mouth well, calculated, are not always the most uplifting. It's not going to be the same thing I'm going to say from this stage. And that's convicting. I need to be the same Brad from this stage that I am outside of those doors, that I am in the basketball court, that I am on the construction site. That's what integrity looks like. That's what holding your tongue looks like. So I encourage the same thing out of yours. Students, it's a lot easier sitting in here in a church setting with other people that have similar parents or families like you that teach similar things. It's a lot easier to say nice, the right things in here. But I guarantee when you go back to school and you hear your friends talking about other people, using words that you know you're not supposed to use, I guarantee you it gets harder. And that's okay because we're all here with you. We all go through the same struggles. We all know what it's like. So I don't want you guys, I don't want students, I don't want you to feel like you're alone in that struggle. I go through that exact same struggle. So let's move on to another passage about who and how, how we should be imitating. Let's turn or look at the screens for 1 Timothy 4.12. Going from 80 degrees to 40 and back-to-back weddings in a weekend are not good on a voice. All right, kids, I especially love this one for you. So 1 Timothy 4.12 says, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers as an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. So how's that sound, kids? We can't look down on you just because you're young. And we shouldn't. We shouldn't. There's a difference between having experience in something in one's youth and then looking down to somebody because of it. How many times do we see kids playing with other kids with less judgment than maybe we see in the same type of adults? Race is always a hot topic, and it should be because we always need to get better at it. But how many times do you see kids who don't look like each other playing with each other way better than adults work next to people who don't look or act or whatever the same as them? It all reflects back to seeing everybody as image bearers of Christ once again. So kids, don't accept judgment unless it's your parents. You have to listen to your parents still. Jack got a big grin when I said that. In speech, once again, speech is brought up again. So we've talked multiple times about where the scriptures say, set your eyes upon Jesus, turn your eyes to heaven. But speech is another thing that's a repetitive matter. What we do with our tongue is an example and a window into where our heart is. So that matters as well. 
good speech, good conduct. And then the purity of an experience in an older generation. So the last part of 1 Timothy, while we're not looking down on the youth because of their youth, the experience is still important. So kids, this is the charge now to you, and really adults, because there's always somebody more experienced than you. When we're looking for what good imitation looks like, look to that older generation who's been through the fire, who's been tested by the flames, who's been refined. Look for an older, older person who's been through more things and maybe fill up the morning grind with that coffee time. Listen to what they have to say. We don't look down on the youth, on kids' youth, but we also cherish the experience of an older generation. The last section I want to look at in who we should imitate is in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. That passage says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you may keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know you ought to imitate us, because we, did not, we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to you. It was not because we did not have the right, but we give, but we give you and ourselves as an example to imitate. So this passage shows us that hard workers are somebody to imitate. Now, We've also talked about from the pulpit, there's a difference between working for a salvation and the free gift that comes from God. We cannot achieve our salvation by works itself. I want to be clear about that. But as we see here in 2 Thessalonians, we're also commended to work hard, to do everything as to working for the Lord, the scriptures say elsewhere. So we're not to sit idle. The Lord did not give us a spirit of being timid. So what's all that mean? It means do everything in happiness for God. Most of us have been blessed with jobs. How hard is it to go to your job on Monday? How hard is it to join in the casual conversation of complaining about the boss? It's a lot easier to join in with the, with the torts of everybody than it is to be different, than to be holy, to be set apart. Also, we're told to be, to be in debt to no one. Are your loans paid off? It gets down to the nitty-gritty, and nobody likes talking about money because it's a little bit awkward. And culture does, does control a little bit of what this may look like. But do you owe something to somebody? And I'm not necessarily talking about the mortgage to the bank. I'm not talking about student loans, things like that. Has somebody done something for you out of a generosity? And are you short to repay that either back to them or other people, I would call that living in debt to somebody. Look for opportunities to serve people, not just to get out of debt to when you've been served, but to do it with a joyful heart and reap that benefit as well. I also think this goes to speak towards how much we enjoy being partnered with our different missionaries, our different church plants. Uh, towards the end of this passage, um, they talk about, nor did we eat from anyone else's bread without paying for it or toil, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden of you. It was not because we do not have the right, but to give ourselves an example for you to imitate. 
So what he's saying here is, as they were planting church, going from church to church, going from town to town planting churches, they probably had the right to absorb a little bit of help from people. They didn't have current jobs. They were going from place to place, setting up churches, living with other people, and they didn't have opportunity to create a living in that sense. So they had the right to gain those from other people, to accept those donations and those offerings from other people. So that's what brings us joy and help planting other churches. Um, Not, I mean, as most of you know, how many volunteers do we have in this church? A lot. How many make money from that? Not nearly as many. The value of our volunteers is so high. And that's what every church plant that we partner with, that's what they model after. A lot of these people going to different cities are planting churches and asking for volunteers. So your hard work at your nine to five, your tithes that we appreciate so much, is why we don't keep them just to ourselves. We send them to our sister and brother planting churches also. But Paul also saw that it was important to show an example of hard work. So while they deserved all those blessings, they also wanted to show hard work because Christ shows us to work hard, tells us to work hard. So I want to move to our take-home truth. The take-home truth says that Christians' imitations should lead them into a deeper relationship with Christ. And this is what I want us to be left with. The earlier challenge of finding out when our time is, when, what time is our best time, finding that out and deciding how we can give it to God. Whether that's quiet time on our own with God, whether that's in the scriptures, whether it's getting coffee with a friend, find what time is your best time and give it to God somehow. You'll be blessed that way, I promise. And then beyond that, I want us to think, that our relationship with God isn't just a checklist. Everything that we've talked about through this morning, all the different types of people that we should emulate or imitate, it's not just a checklist. Spending time in the Word isn't part of a checklist. Praying for people on its own isn't just part of the checklist. Coming to church, going to Wednesday night, none of those are part of the checklist. They are all things that will guide our hearts into a deeper relationship. But those things on our own aren't what's being taught about. My wife and I see enough weddings that it's easy to identify checklist relationships or checklist religions where, okay, at this point of the service, we're going to read 1 Corinthians and then we'll move on. We'll talk about love and all the lovey-dovey things, and then we'll move on. And we see that the relationship isn't there, at least on the surface. We don't know anybody's heart, but superficially, it's easy to see at times. So that's what I want to charge us not to do. I don't want us just to be a group of people that meets here on a Sunday morning to check off the box and doesn't get deeper with each other. I want to be a church that digs into each other. I want to be a church that digs into our leadership for the good teaching that we heard That is what we want to imitate. Finally, towards the end of our Philippians passage, Paul's talking about his destination being heaven. And there's different parts where Paul openly talks about, I'd rather be in heaven, but I'm going to live in faith here on earth. And so it makes me think, what is heaven? Heaven is our constant presence with Jesus. And what's happening in heaven 
is we're going to be worshiping and praising God constantly. Obviously, we don't know exactly what that looks like within our physical constraints, but we are going to be in the presence of God, worshiping our Father and our Creator all the time. And so I get it. As a kid, when I was learning this, I remember thinking, kids, have you ever thought this? Well, if heaven is so great, why do we need to stay on earth? Like, what is the point of that? And it's a valid question. But this is where we can deepen our relationship that we talked about with Christ. Has anybody had to ever go to a birthday party with some great aunt that you've met only at great aunt's said last birthday party? You don't really know her, and it's a party, but you have to go. Has anybody had to do any of that? I have. Mine is a great, oh, I shouldn't have done this because now I can't remember her name. It doesn't matter what her name is, but that kind of proves the point. I don't have a relationship with this great aunt on my dad's side, who they always see every 10 years for birthdays. And so this party isn't that great. It's, it's something that I check off the checklist. I don't want that to be our search for our destination of heaven. I don't want us to walk through this life just checking things off the boxes to achieve heaven. I want us to deepen our relationship now so that it's so much more glorious when we do get to go and be in the presence of God. And that's a big difference between said aunt's birthday party and heaven. We have an approachable God who makes a relationship possible with us. We have the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, if we invite it into our lives, that puts us in communication with God, that influences our life, that speaks to our decisions. We get to build that relationship the entire time. We have an approachable God the entire time before we go to heaven. And that's such a big difference and such an advantage. So that's what our first challenge leads us into. Our good, our best time deepens that relationship with God so that we're not just checking off boxes to make it to heaven, to go on with the next step. We will truly rejoice the way we should be. Because of that cross, we even have that opportunity. That's the difference maker. We don't have to work hard at a list of things. Jesus did the big part for us. Jesus came to this earth and died for us. And that's the best part about it. Will you join me in prayer?